Hello, and welcome to both the Millennial Politics Podcast and the Brand New Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the folks here at Brand New Congress. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My gender pronouns are she, her, and hers. And you are listening to our joint series on Venezuela. Today, I'm joined by the wonderful Charlie Hardy, author of Cowboy in Caracas, a North American's memoir of Venezuela's democratic revolution. Thanks for coming on, Charlie. Well, thank you. And it's good to be with you. I, I, I from way back, have loved the activities of Brand New Congress. I think it's terribly, terribly important in our country today. Thank you. We appreciate that. Charlie, for starters, what is your background and knowledge on Venezuela? I went to Venezuela in 1985 as a a missionary priest, Catholic missionary priest, part of the uh, affiliated with the Marinol organization. But our job, my job, was not to make converts. My job was to live among the people. And so I had the privilege of living in a cardboard shack for eight years uh, without running water, without sewers. We stole our electricity. At the end of that time, uh, I was aware of one conversion. And that was of myself. Uh, I mean, it was an experience like being hit over the head daily with a hammer in a very good sense, having to see things from a totally different perspective. 2007, I wrote a book uh, which you mentioned. In 2011, I came back to the United States to get involved in politics because I really felt that our foreign policy was, was keeping us from doing lots of things that we could do in the United States if we weren't didn't have this huge military budget, and if we weren't sticking our nose in people's business around the world. And in 2014, I was the Democratic candidate for the United States Senate from Wyoming. I did not win the election. Uh, being a Democrat in Wyoming, it's almost impossible. I, we haven't had someone, a Democrat in Washington for over 30 years now. This last uh, December, January, I was back in Venezuela, and I've maintained contact in Venezuela all this time. And so I've just been back here for a few weeks now. So that kind of gives you an overview of my contact. I hope when I talk about anything that you're thinking about the people around me and not about me, the, the great privilege uh, I have had of being there. They are the people of the barrio more than anyone else. Although I do have contacts with people in government and so on. But the most important people, when people would come to Venezuela to visit, I would say I know many important people in Venezuela, like Maria, Noelia, Tony, Jose, and so on. And if you lose sight of that, then you lose sight of what has been happening in Venezuela. What exactly is happening right now in Venezuela? Uh, there's probably two things that I would like to emphasize. One is that I believe President Maduro was elected legally uh, and fairly, I'm going to say. Uh, I believe that there is an attempt to now by our government, and it's been going on, to overthrow a democratically elected government. And the third thing is, I am worried that Venezuela could become another Vietnam. First of all, with regard to the election of President Maduro, took place in May 2018. He got like 67% of the vote. The election process in Venezuela 
is one of the finest in the whole world. Jimmy Carter some years ago said that of the 90-some election processes they had observed around the world up until that time, that Venezuela had the finest process in the whole world. You go in now, you put your thumb on a fingerprint reader, you vote, and you get a printout of how you voted. That printout is then deposited in the box, and so all the computer results can be checked against the printed results. Now, in the United States, to compare our process up here, where every state does whatever they want to do, uh, I think there's five states where there is no paper uh, trail for the votes. And in many other states, some counties don't have that paper trail. So the process of voting is such, I have no doubt that the results were valid. The complaint on the part of the United States is that um, the opposition, the op they would say the opposition didn't participate. Well, no, one member of the opposition did participate. The others decided to drop out. There's a long history in Venezuela. If the opposition wins an election through the process, they recognize it. If they lose it, they say there's fraud, it wasn't valid or whatever. So, anyway, the elections that took place in May, there was another candidate, Henry Falcone, and another candidate additionally, but the opposition wouldn't rally behind him. Maduro won the election. I have no doubt about that. And if anyone wants to complain that, uh, uh, saying that the, the other parties didn't participate and so on, um, when I ran in 2014, my opponent had like three and a half million dollars from oil companies, coal companies, pharmaceutical companies, and so on. We have raised like $60,000, a dollar here, five dollars here, and so on, but all from individuals. Now, was that a fair election? The Democratic Party really didn't pitch anything in. A couple of county parties gave me $350. But if one were to look at that election, was that a fair election? When one candidate has $3.5 million and the other has less than $100,000. We, as the United States, have no right to judge what takes place in the election in another country. Our country will say there should be international observers. Do we ever have international observers? No. But at the same time, usually there are people, they're called the accompanying people, who are there going from place to place, observing what's happening, what's going on. So that's the first point I'd like to make. I feel Maduro was legitimately elected. The U.S. and European Union claim that Maduro is illegitimate due to a fraudulent election but at the same time claim that the opposition, in particular Juan Guaido, is legitimate because they were democratically elected to the National Assembly. Was the electoral process different in the National Assembly elections compared to all of the other elections where Maduro and his party have been victorious? Why is one elected body, the National Assembly, legitimate but all of the others are not in the eyes of the U.S. and numerous other nations. Whenever the, the government, let's say the government, has lost an election, it's been recognized. Chavez lost uh, a couple of elections. One, he wanted to have that uh, another constitutional assembly, and it was voted down. It was very close. Uh, but uh, 
yes, the government recognizes all those other representatives. It was just the three, okay? And uh, so one of the things that President Maduro has been talking about, all right, let's have another election for the National Assembly. They've had elections now for the governors around the country, for mayors around the country. Uh, let's have elections once again for the National Assembly. But that is not acceptable. Yes, it's, it's a double standard that it's involved here, very much so. And as you mentioned, there has been controversy in regards to opposition candidates being disqualified from running in major elections. Why were these candidates disqualified? One, for example, Leopoldo Lopez was very much uh, involved in the, when the government was overthrown back in 2002 and has, uh, I would say, incited people to, to violence. That's the reason why he is under house arrest or I mean, he's not in prison. There's others who are very happy in the opposition that they are not able to run. I can name candidates such as uh, Antonio Ledesma. He runs around the world. He gets awards for freedom of expression. When he was governor of the federal district, he prohibited all demonstrations in, in Caracas. Uh, there's people like Ramos uh, Alup, uh, I And there's a woman, Maria Carina Machado. I sometimes say there is a person running for president of Venezuela, though, that uh, who would really like to be president, and that's Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio uh, would love to be president of Venezuela. I heard him on public radio recently saying, "If we get to Venezuela, then we will get to Cuba." There are there are plenty of other people who would like to run, and in many ways they are just as happy that uh, Leopoldo Lopez and Capriles cannot run. And the 2002 coup is key to what's happening now. Before we look at Guaido, Marco Rubio, and the current opposition, what exactly happened in 2002? And how was the U.S. involved? You mentioned I wrote a book, Cowboy in Caracas, and that was in 2007. I went back and read it. You write something and then you kind of forget about it. And I was really shocked with what I read because what is going on now is really a repetition of what happened back then. Uh, thousands of people marched out on the street and uh, generals uh, said they no longer recognized uh, Chavez and Chavez was overthrown April uh, 11th of 2002. He was back in power on April 13th, 2002. Now, I think there's some importance in this, whatever happens in Venezuela, there were hundreds of, maybe, I'm going to say hundreds of thousands of people out on the street against Chavez. Uh, on May 11th, there were hundreds of thousands. On June 11th, I mean, they kept coming out until December of that year when the executives of the oil company, the best paid people in the country, went on strike. And that lasted for two months. What I'm saying is what has gone on, what is going on, has gone on, and probably will continue to go on. And so you'll see pictures of huge demonstrations. Oftentimes you don't see huge demonstrations in favor of the government. But uh, in 2002, Chavez was overthrown, and uh, it was funny how he came back into power, by the way. 
he was imprisoned and a soldier came in and he said to the soldier, I have not resigned because that's what was being said, that he resigned. He said, I have not. And the soldier said, write down a piece of paper and put it in the wastepaper basket. He did that. The soldier came in, take out the garbage and got that message and took it to his commanding officer. And that's how word got out. Chavez did not resign. And within two days, a massive number of people turned out on the streets and he was back in power. That's basically what happened in 2002. But I'm saying he was back in power, but uh, that didn't mean that the opposition let up in trying to overthrow him. Basically, I would say the United States has been trying to overthrow the government of Venezuela for 20 years now. It started back in 1998 when Chavez was running for election, and it hasn't let up since then. And how exactly did Maduro come to power? Chavez said he felt Maduro should be the president to follow him. And so that's how he became the, the prime candidate. And then he was elected to the presidency. In 2013, when Maduro was elected, it was an incredibly close election, 50.6% to 49.1%. As you mentioned, in 2018, Maduro won in a landslide. The turnout was also incredibly different from 2013. In 2013, it was about 80%. And then in 2018, it was less than 50, according to the government. But opposition leaders say that it was between 17 and 25%. What changed between 2013 and 2018? In 2018, people could see, uh, well, what was the reason, I would say, to go and vote? Some might not have been enthusiastic about Maduro, but I would say everyone just saw he would win, okay? And, and that pulled down voter, uh, the number of people who vote. I, that's, that's what I would attribute to a low turnout, that there wasn't that necessity to go vote. And, and not great enthusiasm either in many ways. Uh, the, the situation, we, we should also talk about the economic situation in Venezuela, uh, because it is tough and a lot of blame is being put on the, the Maduro government. I would say that was a factor in people not being overly enthusiastic about turning out. And now I would like to look at Juan Guaido, the opposition leader being recognized internationally by the US and the European Union as the legitimate leader of Venezuela. Who is Juan Guaido and why is he in particular the supposed legitimate leader of the country? Who is Juan Guaido? When I went to Venezuela in 1985, Juan Guaido was one and a half years old. He was eating baby food and I was looking at children with bloated stomachs with parasites. When he was five and a half, I was in a hospital morgue in Venezuela, in Caracas where I saw naked bodies of young people just strewn on the floor. They'd been killed by the police and even more by the military at that time when there was an uprising. Uh, when he was six and a half, I was sleeping in a cemetery in Caracas with other people from the barrio. Again, I would ask you, please don't think about me. 
think about the people around me who were living in that area. They too saw the children with bloated stomachs. One was also with me in the, when I was at the hospital, in the hospital, although he wasn't with me in the hospital more. People from the barrio slept in the cemetery with me. We were protecting a pit, a grave, where there were 68 bodies in garbage bags, okay, so the government could come and destroy them. That was all before Chavez. Little Juan Guaido knew nothing about what was going on at that time. He became very involved in 2007 when the Venezuelan government did not renew a license for a television station, RCTV, for 20 years. And uh, he said that was taking away freedom of expression. Well, Marcel Granier, who owned that station, uh, he also owned a newspaper. I can show you newspapers that had whole pages censored uh, of his newspaper from back before that time that Juan Guaido knew nothing about. And what the government did, they did not renew the license of RCTV because, as I understand, there's a limited space for uh, open air kind of television. And instead, they decided it should be a television station for the people, for independent pro pro producers. And they had meetings on street corners and so on. What kind of TV station would you want and so on? And so, so they, they established a, like a public PBS, let's say, kind of station. So he's been active in student organizations and so on. He lost some elections. He eventually made it into the Congress. And at the beginning of January, he was made the president of the Congress. President rotates. So each of the different parties have a turn. And it was the turn of his party. And he was the one. That's how he became president of the National Assembly. I had never, yes, I speak in Spanish. Today, I was speaking in Spanish. I substitute teach. Um, but there's words that are new, and uh, I, I have to admit, I was. Uh, I was one of three people, I happened to be in Venezuela at the time, invited to go to the inauguration of President Maduro. So I was in the Supreme Court building that day. And President Maduro mentioned a few times, why go, why go? And, and I, with my Spanish, I'm trying to figure out, what is he talking about? That's a word I've never heard before. Uh, not a significant person on the whole lands, political landscape of Venezuela. And yet, as soon as he announced the 23rd of January, I now declare myself president of Venezuela. I think it was within an hour, it was very soon after, that President Trump recognized him. I mean, I'm saying, huh, I've lived here all those years, I've never heard of him. And yet, this man announces I am president, and in a very soon after, President Trump says he is the president. Doesn't that seem strange? Okay, I hope that gives you some idea who Juan Guaido is. He was an unknown figure who suddenly the United States says he's the president. And really digging into Guaido and what's happening right now, the opposition has made the case that the National Assembly recognizing Guaido as the leader of Venezuela is a constitutional matter. Article 233 of the Venezuelan Constitution states, quote, when the president-elect is absolutely absent before taking office, a new election shall take place, and until the president is elected and takes office, the interim president 
shall be the president of the National Assembly. Is what the National Assembly doing right now, is it constitutional? And I'm going to say, no, it's not constitutional. And what is the body to decide whether something is constitutional? It's the Supreme Court, okay? If Maduro was mentally sick, if he were not uh, physically capable, all those kind of things, that isn't what exists. He's there, he's functioning, he has his cabinet, he, the military, everything, it's functioning. Uh, as far as the interpretation of the Constitution goes, it's not up to the United States to decide how to interpret the Constitution or any other country. And what exactly has the popular response been to this constitutional crisis in Venezuela? I think what the big concern is not the constitutional crisis. The big concern is the economic situation in Venezuela right now. That is what is probably affecting things more than anything else. It's what's used by outside the country and by the opposition. Outside the country, they say there is a humanitarian crisis. But why are there empty shells? Why the, the economic problems? And we have to look at the sanctions that have been imposed upon Venezuela. Uh, and this goes back beyond President Trump. President Obama declared Venezuela a threat to our national security. I can never understand why threat to our national security. Venezuela, I mean, they haven't gone around invading other countries. They have no interest in uh, uh, being a threat to our national security. Uh, although it probably relates to the whole question of oil. Venezuela has more oil reserves than any other country in the world, including Saudi Arabia. And uh, it, uh, it, back to 1500 BC, the Aryan people invaded India. They didn't have a word for war. Their word for war was the desire for cattle. And I think someday that might end up in our dictionaries as the, the definition for, for war, the desire for oil. Venezuela has oil, they have gold, they have coltan, which I understand is using cell phones and so on. The sanctions which have been imposed. In, in a way of a practical example, imagine, I, I presume, Jordan, that you have a bank account and you probably have credit cards. But imagine if tomorrow you needed some medicine which cost $500 and the bank said, sorry, yes, you have money here, but you can't have it. And the credit card said, yes, you have good credit, but uh, we're not letting you have it. And that basically is what is happening. For example, Venezuela wanted to buy some medicines from Germany, but they couldn't get at the billion and a half dollars that they have in England to buy it. Uh, so I, some of it may be mismanagement, whatever. Is there corruption in Venezuela? Yes, there's corruption. Has there always been? Yes, there is. Is there corruption in the United States? Yes, there is. Um, has the government maybe not been as efficient as possible in use of money? Possibly so. Although, for example, there was criticism, there's lots of criticism, when oil money was pouring in at a higher rate, that the government used it on social programs. Well, the people who lived in those shacks where I lived now have decent apartments, decent homes. Chavez always insisted, for example, that apartments have three bedrooms, one for the couple, one for male children, one for female children, two bathrooms. Um, did they waste money in doing this? Well, if you consider that to be a waste of money, yes. 
But personally, I consider it investing in the people, the health program, the education program. Uh, that to me was not a waste of money. But these sanctions, if you look, I, I mean, oh Lord, the uh, illiteracy being wiped out, uh, you know, hunger being wiped out, all those things. But then you look at recent years and, and the problem of lack of malnutrition, uh, I don't know if it's malnutrition, but not as much nutrition as before, it, it has become a much bigger problem. It, with regard to the economic situation, it is tough right now, but I do not blame it all on Maduro. And when it comes to the economy, of course, oil is key here. What role does oil play in Venezuela's economy and how have sanctions affected that? It was always Chavez's desire to, someone said we should plant oil, okay, use it to, to buy seeds and things to move in a whole different direction. I don't think they have moved as well in that direction as they should. Now the U.S. government is imposing sanctions on the petroleum industry. In the past, for example, I think Venezuela owned like 4,500 Sitco filling stations in the United States. None of that money was going back to Venezuela before Chavez. It was being invested in the United States. It was being kept up here. With Chavez, that money started going back to Venezuela. But imagine now if the United States says, no, it cannot go back. We are holding it for Guaido. Well, wow, that is really a way of, of, of hurting the people, not hurting the government, hurting the people. Uh, a senator from here in Wyoming has been against embargo, the embargo of Cuba, because he says embargoes only hurt the people. They don't hurt the government. And uh, basically what we're doing now in Venezuela is hurting the people in the hopes that eventually it will hurt the government. And Juan Guaido does support U.S. military intervention in Venezuela. Is that a common opposition position? Why would Guaido, why would, why would actual Venezuelans want the U.S. to intervene given the history of U.S. intervention? It's hard for me to understand how anyone would want military intervention from another country. That mentality, some years ago, I remember uh, a reporter from England who went into a wealthy part of town talking to someone in the restaurant, and the person said there are not poor people and rich people in Venezuela and Caracas. There are intelligent people and stupid people, and the stupid people live up in the barrios and do whatever you want to and you can't change them. I'm saying I lived among those supposedly stupid people. I kind of understand what they're thinking, but among the so-called intelligent people who want an invasion from a foreign power, I cannot understand that. In regards to, quote, stupid and intelligent people, what exactly are the class dynamics here? I once wrote an article about uh, there's a big difference between the people of color and the people who don't have color. And someone said, that's not true. That's not true. Oh, hey, it, 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 it is true, and you can't deny it. It is a problem. It is a problem that Chavez was a problem because he was a person of color. had some, I think, indigenous roots, some uh, uh, black roots. It's a mixture of uh, roots. But that is a problem, and it can't be denied. 
with regard to the people in the barrio, someone would get a job, and first of all, it would be during the day, then it would be they had to stay there during the night, and so on down the line. It, uh, no, there, there is a big class distinction. And as you may have seen, there have been pictures online comparing the opposition to the Chavistas, the opposition being predominantly white and light-skinned, the Chavistas being predominantly people of color and dark-skinned. Do you think that's accurate? Yes, it's accurate. There are dark-skinned people among the, the uh, opposition. There are light-skinned people among the, those who support the government. But in general, I think you can say, yes, in Venezuela, the opposition would be better dressed and they would be of lighter skin. And I'd also mention that with regard to the media in general, you're going to see pictures of hundreds of thousands of people marching in opposition to the government. It'll be harder for you to find marches of 100,000 people marching in favor of the government because they are not being shown. I remember a reporter from Canada, this was during the time of Chavez, saying to me, I saw a million people in support of the government. If I have ever seen a million people, I saw a million people. But when I returned to the office, I said, over a hundred thousand were present for the rally. And the editor said, no, Associated Press says there were more than 10,000. So here's a reporter who said, if I have ever seen a million, I've seen a million. What went in the newspaper, over 10,000 people read this route. You have that going on also in that you have had it going on and you do have it going on. The ordinary journalist that comes in from outside and speaks Spanish a little bit this way or that way or whatever, or maybe speaks well, I would say does not have contact with the ordinary person. Uh, the Associated Press is in, I believe it's probably still there, in the headquarters of one of the main opposition newspapers. That's where it was before. And the U.S. has accused Maduro of blocking humanitarian aid, while the Red Cross has accused the U.S. of politicizing humanitarian aid. What is the truth about what's happening there? It would have to be said that this definitely is being used for a political reason. The government is getting food to the people. But when you can't get the money to buy food, yes, it makes, but if people do not have as much food as they had in the past, it's because of the sanctions that have been imposed on the government. It's really a mockery to prohibit the government from getting food and then to send humanitarian aid. It is a political thing. It really is not a humanitarian uh, uh, desire. It, it's, it's a media show. And you've mentioned the disparities in how you see what's going on and what the U.S. media is reporting. What, what is driving these disparities? Why is the media publishing uh, op-eds by Juan Guaido? Why does the media overwhelmingly support the opposition and Juan Guaido? You know, I guess one would like to think that... Uh, What's being done is in good faith. I know, though, a reporter back in the time of Chavez who left the country with an international news service because he said, if Chavez dedicates one of the most modern schools in the whole world, and there's one woman protesting, that is what will go out, the woman protesting. And he said, I write stories and the bureau chief changes it. 
And he finally just left the country altogether. He said, there is no value in my trying to report on what I see here. I just think reporters are out of touch with the reality and uh, they're listening. You look on television, you get someone speaking English saying, we want freedom. We are protesting because we want freedom. There has never been such freedom as there is today in Venezuela. And I'm not saying everything is perfect. Okay, there is abuse of power uh, by police and the National Guard and so on. Uh, but I could also show you, when I was at Standing Rock, a beautiful abuse of power as troops were sent against, uh, dressed in military uniforms, <laughs> against protesters there. Can I say, why are we getting so much lopsided news? The only thing I can say, it's all part of trying to overthrow a government. We've got to hate. We've got to hate the government and so as to justify our own country's actions. Maduro is being portrayed as a dictator. Chavez was portrayed as a dictator. And as you've mentioned and touched on a lot, U.S. officials such as Marco Rubio and John Bolton have been somewhat shockingly open about what motivates U.S. involvement in Venezuela. Trump at a recent rally did not mention humanitarianism, but rather said that we need to eliminate socialism completely across the globe, and that's what he aimed to do in Venezuela. What does motivate the U.S. here? Yeah, there's lots of things being played here. One of them, I think, is this whole question of what is socialism. So, what does socialism mean? A man, a barrio man talking to a group of citizens from the United States who are visiting said there's two elements of our government here today. One is the participatory dimension, I believe that's a good word, where everybody is involved. The other is the endogenous dimension. Endogenous means coming from within. We do not have to look at other models of socialism. We should look within ourselves to create a new model. If there's anything, the, the book, Cabo uh, in Caracas, I ended by saying this is not a book about Chavez. The title I wanted for the book was Venezuela, the World's Best Kept Secret of Democracy. And I think that's what is threatening to the United States and to other countries. Participatory democracy coming from endogenous dimension. And how can our listeners express solidarity with the people of Venezuela right now? What action can they take to hold their elected officials, Democrat or Republican, accountable to what's happening? Uh, throughout the, there's going to be a march on Washington 16th, if I'm not mistaken. If you were to look at that uh, Alliance for Global Justice site, you can see where demonstrations are being held throughout the country. And, and not only throughout the country, but throughout the world, asking for non-intervention, largely, hands off Venezuela. But the 28th of February, there are marches, and there, is, there are other demonstrations being held. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Charlie, so much for coming on to the podcast today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And for all those who are listening because you've had involvement with Brand New Congress, please, please do everything you can. Uh, I, uh, I, I remember when I met Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, before she was elected, 
I didn't think she had a chance of a snowball in hell to get elected. And then that Wednesday morning when I woke up and heard that she had won the election. That's incredible. And part of it was due to the support of brand new Congress. And so please, I, I just beg you all, stick with it. Keep fighting for good candidates, whether they're Republican or Democrat or whatever. Keep fighting for good candidates, please. And thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. And thank you, Jordan. This has been a real privilege having this conversation with you. We're so glad to have had you on and you kind of beat me to my conclusion. To keep up to date with the Millennial Politics Podcast and Brand New Congress, make sure to subscribe to both podcasts on iTunes. Check out our websites, brandnewcongress.org and millennialpolitics.co and follow us on Twitter at millenpolitics and at brandnew535 on Instagram at millenpolitics and at Brand New Congress, and on Facebook at Millennial Politics and Brand New Congress. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.